History is full of monetary regimes that died because the government trapped itself in a spiral of printing ever more currency in reckless pursuit of unaffordable policies. Are today's major world currency issuers like America, the EU, Japan, and China now stuck in that very same trap? And you're at the point where now the cost of government is so much that you're pretty much going to run through 100% of your tax revenue just paying interest on the debt and your mandatory entitlement spending. We've been that way for a long time. And when that's the situation that you're in, where you could virtually eliminate everything we think of as government, from the Defense Department to the uh, you know Parks and Recreation, all these different things like that, because you're too busy paying Social Security and, and all the mandatory entitlements that they keep creating, now the universal basic income and all that, your only option is to just keep printing more money. It wasn't the case 20 years ago, but I believe that's the case now. Um, we've, we've kind of reached that point of no return where all they can really do now is just keep printing more money as a way to make ends meet. And that's, that's something that we haven't, every time we've gotten to that point throughout history, if you go back to, you can go back to the, 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 you know, the Romans and the Ottomans and so forth. Anytime people get to that point where essentially they've got to borrow money to pay interest on the money they've already borrowed, that's pretty much the, the line in the sand. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better decisions about building your wealth. Now, they say those who do not understand the lessons of history are condemned to repeat them. This is not the first time that authorities have intentionally devalued currency in order to stimulate economic growth or curtailed personal liberties in the name of public safety. What does history suggest will be the outcome of these efforts? And what implications will they have for those looking to preserve their wealth? To tackle these questions, I'm pleased to welcome entrepreneur, investor, world traveler, and scholar of history, James Hickman, to the program. Under the pen name Simon Black, he's the founder of SovereignMan.com, which seeks to help investors around the globe achieve true freedom and prosperity. James, thank you so much for joining us. Now, where in the world are you talking to us from today? I'm I'm in my I'm in my uh, studio in uh, in Puerto Rico, which is to <laughs> right. say it's I'm <laughs> I'm in a closet and upstairs bedroom that I've converted into a place to do uh, podcasts and videos since this interview is so frequent these days. <laughs> okay, well, look, yeah. I know you're a man in high demand, so so let's dive right into it. I've got a bunch of questions for you, but I want to start with the one that I ask all of my guests sure. before introducing any potential biases, uh, mine or yours. What is your assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Um, mixed. If I'm if I'm if I'm you know if I'm intellectually honest, I think um, every business that I'm involved with, for the most part, has you know, done extremely well over the last year. Uh, I mean, since COVID, I think most people that I know and that I deal with, in, in, I mean, I, I deal with people in a variety of businesses. I own a bank, so I deal with people that have everything from manufacturing companies, food processing, uh, you know, shipping, logistics, tech, everything. And for the most part, people have done extremely well. Um, and so, I, you know, I think we can talk about why that is. On the other hand, you see a lot of people that have been completely devastated uh, by this. And it, 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 it is kind of a tale of two cities. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, depending on who you're talking to. And, and that's, that's kind of where I see things in the world right now. 
All right. Um, yeah, I do want to dig into that, into both the mm -hmm. causes uh, of that, as well as what you think the, the repercussions could be. Um, and we tend to talk a lot about the financial repercussions, but I'd also sure. be curious to hear your thoughts on the, the social repercussions as well. Um, but uh, well, here, let me let me pull up my questions, because I think they actually sort of sure. head us in that direction. Um, in the introduction, I referred to the trillions of dollars in global monetary and fiscal stimulus that had been flooding the world since the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. And of course, this was preceded by trillions over the previous decade as well. Um, unsurprisingly, we're seeing asset valuations at record all-time highs now, mm -hmm. as well as spiking consumer price inflation. Um, however, you know, we're also seeing economic growth is, is now beginning to slow. So, you know, the, the rocket fuel that they're adding isn't necessarily juicing the economy the way that they were hoping to. So um, I guess first, let's just let's zoom way up with the scope of history, because I, I love it when I watch you present, Simon, because you generally always are bringing up precedent in history for whatever you're talking about. Um, what do previous instances in history tell us about how successful printing money is at boosting economic growth. It, do, we, do we have examples where it's actually worked as intended or is this really a Faustian bargain that, uh, that, that really costs more in the long run? You know, it's funny, the, I was reading an interview recently with Gideon Gono, uh, you, you know that name? He was, the, he, was the, uh, he was the head of the central bank of a, a little country that a lot of people are familiar with, especially if they study inflation called Zimbabwe. And, um, you know, as, uh, as a lot of uh, meager bureaucrats who come up on their skills, uh, he lives in a very lavish 47-bedroom mansion in uh, Harare and has, has done extremely well for himself. <laughs> During his time as a central banker, obviously, he was the one that was responsible for adding so many zeros to the currency, or they had a dollar, you know, then hundred dollars, then thousand, then millions and billions and trillions and so forth. And in this interview, he was reflecting back on his time and amazingly enough, was actually quite defensive about his performance and saying, because of what we did and, you know, we saved our civilization and, and all these you know, people always justify their actions in retrospect. But his thinking on it was, he said, you know, every time we every time we looked at the situation and we considered our options and we looked at what was going on, the only answer we kept coming back to was we have to print more money. That's all we can do. We just have to print more money. I think you're at a point in, uh, in, in most of the West where that is now the only answer. If you had, you know, if, if you'd gone back even 20 years, um, I don't think that you would be at that point where you could say we can tighten our belts. We, because I mean, people have been talking about this. I mean, you, you can go back and look at, uh, I mean, speeches that Ronald Reagan gave, not only as president, but even before he was governor, right? Ronald Reagan in the 60s as a, you know, sort of early, uh, you know, the, the, the conservative, uh, you know, Hollywood guy. Hawk. Yeah, right. Exactly. And he was going on giving these uh, these hilarious speeches, honestly. And he was talking about all this crazy spending and stuff like that. And you realize that people have been complaining about this for a really long time. And people have been saying that all this spending is going to lead to inflation and it's going to lead to the debt's going to get too big and so forth. And yet here we are. And it's, you know, 60 years later. And the reality is, though, is that up to that point in the 60s, in the 80s, in the 90s, yeah, it was a problem, but it was a problem they could have stopped. It was a problem they could have said, we're going to get our house in order and so forth. And they did that for basically a year in the late 90s. And they, they actually ran a positive uh, budget surplus and 
in theory, started paying down the debt. Yeah, for a heartbeat, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. It lasted and it's gone, right? But now we're at the point where the apparatus of government has become so costly with the level of entitlement that just keeps growing. And as you understand very well, I know about entitlement spending is that it's most of these things are mandatory. It's like your mortgage payment. It just gets sucked out of your bank account. You don't even write a check for it. It's not anything that Congress has to debate. They just keep creating more and more entitlements. And those are things that get automatically deducted from the treasury's account, you know, every day, every month, every year. And so they have created such a massive uh, entitlement structure and it keeps growing all these new things. Actually, what a lot of people don't realize is in this, you know, three and a half trillion dollar COVID bill and in the infrastructure bill uh, on top of that, there's all these new entitlement programs that basically create this, these long-term, you know, a, additional excess spending. And you're at the point where now the cost of government is so much that you're pretty much going to run through hundred percent of your tax revenue just paying interest on the debt and your mandatory entitlement spending. We've been that way for a long time. And when that's the situation that you're in, where you could virtually eliminate everything we think of as government from the defense department to the uh, you know, parks and recreation, all these different things like that, because you're too busy paying social security and, and all the mandatory entitlements that they keep creating. Now the universal basic income and all that, your only option is to just keep printing more money. It wasn't the case 20 years ago, but I believe that's the case now. Um, we've, we've kind of reached that point of no return where all they can really do now is just keep printing more money as a way to make ends meet. And that's, that's something that we haven't, every time we've gotten to that point throughout history, if you go back to, you can go back to the, 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 you know, the Romans and the Ottomans and so forth. Anytime people get to that point where essentially they've got to borrow money to pay interest on the money they've already borrowed, that's pretty much the, the line in the sand. Okay. Um, and so accurate to say that most well-known examples throughout history like that, they, they, they ended with the destruction of the currency. In other words, they, they, they didn't find a way to magically reduce this, magically reverse this, and yet still grow their economies the way they wanted to. Yeah, in the, in the Victorian era in, uh, in England in the 1800s, you had instances where the currency uh, was inflated and, and they, they printed a, a lot of money. Walter Badgett famously railed against this um, you know, in, the, in the earliest days of, of really the economist. Um, and, uh, you know, but this, this is something where it was one of the very few instances where the, it, it didn't resort to, you know, uh, a, a really rampant um, uh, episode of inflation and, and a collapse of the currency and so forth. They actually had generally good experience. Most of that was because they had quite anomalous economic growth associated with their expansion, et cetera. So, I mean, not to get into the details, but there are essentially almost almost zero, but not quite precisely zero cases of history where uh, it works out very well, where you can just really inflate your currency. And in Victorian England, the inflation of the currency was nothing compared to what we're seeing today. All right. So, um, you know, it sounds like uh, you see just, again, uh, further printing ahead, maybe almost Tina, you know, there is no alternative, at least in the mind of the folks who are running the system, but continued printing here. Um, now, you've written relatively recently that uh, the, the, the near-term inflation that we're seeing, the near-term spike of, of, of price inflation, you know, CPI and whatnot, um, that you see that as being um, not transitory uh, and being longer, longer lived uh, is, is what I'm trying to separate here is, sounds like in the long term, you 
you're very, very confident we're just going to see, you know, more currency expansion. Um, I guess my question is, is in the near term, uh, do you see any of the, you know, fa fairly substantial increase in the cost of living that we've experienced over the past year or two uh, abating at all? Or is this the point in the story where we just sort of start seeing costs just begin to spiral out of control? Sure. I think, I think uh, it, it's not, it's not going to be a straight line. Uh, I think there will definitely be months and quarters and so forth that we'll see that inflation is, is, is reduced and tamed. It, frankly, like inflation, I believe is, is a difficult concept in general because inflation means different things to different people. What's inflation for me is different than right. inflation for you. Right. So everybody has their own. That's the thing. It's, it's basically is your cost of living, your personal cost of living going up. And for some people it is, and others, others, uh, it is maybe to a less degree, uh, to a lesser degree. But I think we will, in the long run, continue to see. There will definitely be months where the things that you buy the most, maybe you'll see price stability and things go down. Um, other people will will see theirs go up more. Um, but I think in the long run, in general, people will probably see their cost of living increase dramatically and outpace that increase in the value of their savings uh, will continue to see negative interest rates. You're, you're earning, you know, 20 basis points in your bank account, if that, um, and, and sure, see five, 6%, you know, inflation, there will be months and quarters where it'll, it'll fall to, you know, 3.2 and the, and the central bank will say, you see, I told you it was transitory <laughs> and then it'll go back up. Um, and, and so none of these things will exist on a, on a straight continuum that, that that's, that's unidirectional. Uh, it'll bounce around like a pinball, but that's the whole point of inflation. It's a long-term phenomenon that if people look at it over time, they'll realize that their cost of living um, has and, and can and will increase dramatically. So that's that's generally my view um, because I think they will continue to print money, and I think they'll continue to print money because uh, that is what their 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 predilection is towards is printing money. But I think more importantly, the uh, the, the printing money comes because the government uh, wants to spend so much money. And I think unless or until you actually have some, uh, some what would now be severe to the point of almost catastrophic fiscal restraint, the demand for new money creation will remain high. So the, the longer they, they continue to, to demand the money, the central bank will accommodate it by printing more, and that's going to feed into inflation. And the, the, the cessation of of all this fiscal irresponsibility requires a tremendous amount of political courage, which just simply doesn't exist. All right, so so many questions uh, coming off of that. Um, I want to try to hit them in order. Um, I do want to get to the political courage or, or lack of courage in like just of. a sec. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but first, let me just put my finger directly on a, a sore point of a lot of viewers watching this video, where I, I think your words are probably validating a lot of their concerns and fears. Um, these people are, uh, they're just trying not to not have their wealth get destroyed by runaway inflation. So they're trying to figure out where to invest it. And, and in, in a little bit, I want to get to sort of specific in, in, in attractive areas for investment in this type of environment. Uh, but staying at the macro level for a moment, the, what they feel caught between here is all right, I, I see uh, rising inflation. Um, I don't want to be in cash. There's all this pressure to get pushed down on the risk curve because you know safe investments aren't yielding anything in a zero percent interest world, a negative interest rate world. Um, but they're looking at the valuation metrics 
right? Uh, and they're seeing how we are just so far from historical uh, norms and means of, of, of almost an innumerable number of, of metrics out there. And so what they don't want to do is they don't want to be that greatest fool <laughs> that goes along right before this whole party you know, comes to a, a screeching halt in the way that it did, say, like in 2008, right? So everybody feels that we're sort of at bubble type asset prices here. And they're really trying to answer the question, you know, do I park in safety and, and have to deal with the inflation tax until there's a correction? Um, or are we at the point where maybe it's just never going to correct again? It's just going to be sort of this long march higher. And I, as much as I hate it, I just have to go long things because if I don't, inflation is going to kill me. Yeah, the, the thing about inflation, again, it's, it's, it really is, we understand it almost academically, but to, to understand it uh, from an experiential perspective, most people don't have any experience with it anymore because we've had relatively low and benign inflation for so long. Uh, and a lot of people don't even remember a time. I mean, the inflation they're talking about in their engineering right now is basically now the highest level it's been in 30 years. So there are a lot of people that were not even born or, or necessarily with it uh, the last time inflation was as high. They've never even experienced anything like that. And you've got to think about inflation in a way. Uh, I mean, I, I think about it in terms of I, I look at my daughter, who is an infant, and think, you know, the median home price when she's my age will be millions of dollars. Millions. Yeah. Millions of dollars. Right. You know, people will be paying, you know, people will be paying $15 million for a house when she's my age, like people pay, you know, 600 grand for a house now, uh, you know, kind of thing. And so it's, a, it's, it's above, it's above the median, you know, but it's not that shocking at all for somebody to pay, you know, something like that or a million bucks for a house now. I mean, that's, you know, 20 million in the future will be that. And that's the way you kind of have to think about it. And it's not a month to month, quarter to quarter, even year to year thing. You've got to think about it in terms of 10, 20, 30 years from now. And our instincts preclude us from being able to do that. We're really terrible. Our species, we're really, really terrible at thinking long-term. We can only kind of deal here right in front of our face. We do really bad at thinking very, very long-term. Thinking about inflation forces you to go against your most human instincts, forces you to think very, very long-term. And I would encourage people to think about it that way, where you look at your kids or your grandkids, you know, and, and think about your grandkids paying $20 for a can of Coke uh, you know, and instead of, you know, when I was a kid, you know, it was 20 cents, 25 cents, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the vending machine. Um, so in terms of the, the other thing, I think a lot of people think about when they're looking at financial markets and they see things, especially when almost everything is, it doesn't matter. You're looking at real estate, all time high crypto, all time high bonds, 10 trillion plus with negative yields, you know, at all time highs. <laughs> junk bonds, all-time highs, stocks, all-time highs. And you just got to look at this and go, you know, you, in, in some respects, a, a rational person goes, I'm not, I'm not touching any of that stuff. I'm not going to go anywhere near any of that because it's insanely expensive. And I know what's going to happen. There's a lot of people thinking this right now going, I know my luck. As soon as I start putting money in the market, that's the day that it's that, you know, that it tanks, I'm going to go and take all this money that I worked hard for and save, I'm going to go and throw it all at this asset or this, this financial market. And that's the day and it's going to tank. Um, and I know a lot of people feel that way. I think the reality is when you're, when you're making those types of decisions, you've got to make decisions, uh, and buy, um, 
I think you've got to look at it not as markets or even asset classes. I think you've got to get very micro and look at things very individual uh, on an individual basis and ask yourself, is this an asset? If it's, you know, if you think about stocks, is this a business that I would want to own? Not, you know, not buying and selling stocks, but thinking about stocks as, for example, as if you were buying the entire business. And is this a business? If you were to pay that price, that market cap for the entire business today, is that a business that you would still want to own with present management, et cetera, 20 years from now um, based on this purchase price today? And if the answer is no, um, you know, it, because who knows what the world's going to look like 20 years from now? Who knows, right? And, and so if you can't have uh, enough comfort that you know, the business model and so forth and the management, everything is, is good enough to last you know, 20 years, um, you know, I mean, you, you might want to consider some alternatives, but I think that's really what it is. It, it's it's because inflation is only going to be one issue to think about. And there's going to be all sorts of challenges, but there's also going to be all sorts of opportunities. Right. And so to me, it's just this very long term thinking on individual assets as opposed to thinking about stocks, big S, bonds, big B. You know, it's individual assets over a very long period of time um, and thinking about, uh, you know, thinking about these decisions in that way. All right. I actually think that's really valuable perspective and a way to look at it. Um, I'm going to ask you a similar question just because um, I, I know that folks are locked in on this. Um, we've had a lot of recent past guests. Um, they, they, they're not universal in their outlook, obviously, but um, I would say that the majority consensus is that um, many of them feel that in the near term, uh, meaning like next three to nine months, uh, the risk of a, of a near-term correction, in their words, is uncomfortably high, right? And again, it, this, many of them see this as a correction that will be followed by incredibly, you know, uh, easy uh, policy that's going to make a lot of the stimulus we've seen so far look like child's play. <laughs> um, but they do see that there, there's the potential for the market to experience anywhere from a, I think we've said some say 20%. We've had a few go as high as 80% correction. I guess the question I'm just looking to ask you is, is in, in the way that in which you're looking at sort of investing writ large right now, how worried are you about uh, a correction in, in, in the relatively near term? Is it something you spend much time worrying about or are you more taking that long-term 20-year view that you just mentioned? I think about it a lot. I'd be lying if I said, oh, I, I'd never think about it. I've been thinking about it for the last 10 years. Um, I mean, there are things that I thought were completely unsustainable when they started printing a bunch of money in, you know, 2009, 2010. Um, you know, and I, I mean, as you're aware, there was a, a cycle back, you know, 2011, 12, 13, where there was a lot higher inflation for a while, and then it kind of petered out. And so I'm sure there are a lot of people think maybe this is just a repeat of the last cycle, really, uh, which ultimately ended and, and, and sustained very high asset prices for a very long time. To completely unreasonable levels. So yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to suspect there may be a short-term correction. I think the fact that the central bank is telling people months in advance, guys, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to pull the stimulus. We're going to do it. We're going to stop supporting the housing market. We're going to stop you know, doing these things. And they're telling people that months and months and months in advance to kind of get people ready for it. I mean, to me, that's reason enough to suspect that, okay, maybe there might actually be a correction here. I think I don't. I don't presume that these people are stupid. I actually. I actually believe they're. They're very intelligent. Um, I just don't know that we all have aligned incentives, and uh, 
I think they're smart enough to know that a major adjustment, they jack up interest rates to ward off inflation and all these sorts of things, that's going to have a catastrophic impact on financial markets. Not to mention, the U.S. federal government simply cannot afford to pay, you know, 4%. It's bankrupting. So I think they're trying to engineer something that can be uh, a softer decline, something where financial markets, you know, stocks kind of stabilize. They don't, you know, they don't crash. We don't see some some 30, 40% correction or anything like that. But, you know, maybe you have several years where, where stocks don't go up. If you think about it just in terms of a law of averages, right, and stocks keep going higher and higher and higher and higher very quickly, in theory, that means that greater returns today probably pretend lower returns in the future, um, as uh, if nothing else, simply because of the law of averages. So I do think about it. But in terms of the individual decisions that I made, I mean, we invested in a, you know, in a, in a, in a gold mine, um, like a literal gold mine, not a, not being, and it's not hyperbole. I mean, it's a gold mine. Um, it's silver and some copper as well. But you know, that was that was a decision based on uh, uh, you know a, a twenty plus year macroeconomic outlook. A lot of the the investment decisions that we make are are in that way because again, they're all very individual. Looking at management, the executive team, all these different things in terms of the people that I want. It's just the same way that you trust financial advisors. Let's say maybe to manage your money. A lot of people do that. Um, I, I entrust money to entrepreneurs and business executives, uh, in the same way I invest in their companies and they turn the capital that we give them into enterprise value. Um, and so the decisions that I make again, are very micro, those investment decisions are extremely micro based on the talent and experience of the individuals into whom I'm entrusting capital. All right, great. Uh, that was actually a great answer, Simon. Um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, I, 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 I want to tug at this thread just one one more time before we then move into the more sort of practical sure. specifics, like. um, which is, okay, so we just talked about sort of the financial, um, the, the risk embodied in the financial system. Um, let, let's say that, uh, you know, they, they hold things together and the status quo just sort of continues from here on its current trajectory. Um, you yourself said that uh, the way this likely plays out is that the cost of living just gets higher and higher and higher and it outpaces uh, similar increases in wages, right? So that just more and more of the populace is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. So at some point there is a social breakage um, potentially maybe happening before a financial one um, where the populace just says, all right, we can't take this anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Obviously, we've seen this before in history, um, and also just kind of doing the napkin math in your in your head, like how far away from that moment are we? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the oldest themes in history, and and you know, you've seen a lot of the remarks that I've given over the years. Uh, that that factors pretty heavily into my remarks. I mean, human beings, we are generally quite adaptable uh, as a species. Uh, we'll and we'll put up with a lot of shit. We'll you know we'll 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 suffer through people taking our freedoms away. We'll suffer through all sorts of things. But as soon as somebody has to really struggle to put food on the table for their kids, that's when you've got a problem. That's when a government has a problem. People will put up with all sorts of stuff, nasty bosses and and a polluted environment and all sorts of things like that. But when you know inflation gets so bad, the economy gets so bad, they. They really struggle to put food on the table. That's when there's a big problem. We've seen this over and over again, literally throughout the millennia, 
going all the way back to the, you know, the, the ancient Assyrians and Babylonians. I mean, there's just countless examples of history uh, where these sorts of things are, are very prevalent. How far? I mean, we've seen it on our own, you know, life not too long ago. I mean, there was the the Tunisian, uh, you know, the Arab Spring. All that started with a Tunisian Absolutely. fruit fruit cart merchant. You know, I mean, guys just trying to make ends meet. So, uh, you know, how far away are we? I think in a lot of ways it's already happening in in a lot of countries. I think the more, um, you know, COVID's definitely been um, a factor in this. Um, I don't know. We we probably shouldn't talk about this, <laughs> for, given the conversation we had earlier. But uh, uh, we could at least say rather benignly that you know COVID's certainly a factor. I think in in people's ability to go out and work and and these sorts of things, which is why governments have been so enthusiastic about meeting those restrictions with things like universal basic income. You know, COVID relief is really universal basic income in disguise. Um, and so I think, I think in some respects we might already be there, but I mean, in terms of, you know, full blown people out in the streets, you know, protesting, whatever, um, you know, who knows? I don't have a crystal ball on that, but I, I, I it wouldn't surprise me if I saw it tomorrow, but it could be, who knows, years from now. Uh, but I, I really couldn't say. I think that I don't, I don't, I don't know the right question is really when that happens. Um, I think that the, the right way to look at it is it's pro it, it's likely it'd be hard. I think for a rational person to argue that it's unlikely that you can completely decimate somebody's way of life in so many different ways, socially, economically, from a regulatory perspective, et cetera, to make so many major changes so quickly and expect that that pace of change will be met with absolutely no social reaction whatsoever. Um, I think that's a ludicrous argument. I'm willing for somebody to, to, to sit across the table for me and make that argument, and I will listen to it. Uh, but I think it's very difficult to make that argument. So with that in mind, whether it's six months from now or six years from now, I think it's really just a question of what do you as, as a rational thinking person do, uh, knowing that that's certainly at least a, a fairly probable risk on the horizon, and, and horizon being the horizon that we can, you know, that we can see uh, as any horizon, we, we can, you can always see the horizon and this is definitely on the horizon. Right. So, um, you know, what is, what does somebody really do? And I think that's really the, uh, you know, more appropriate way to look at it as opposed to trying to figure out how, you know, is it three months or, cause I think when you think about it that way, you look at it in terms of a time frame. it, it goes back to this idea where we, we suck at long-term planning as human beings. And so to me, I, I just prefer to think about things that it's going to happen most likely. So let's just deal with it now, as opposed to kicking the can down the roads. Like we all know that social security is going to go bankrupt in the next 10 years. This isn't my conspiracy theory. This is the treasury secretary of the United States right, right, puts, right. puts it in writing and says, we're going bankrupt in the early 2030s. And now because of COVID, that's going to accelerate. So we know this is going to happen. What are most people doing about it? Absolutely nothing, right? So we know that there's probably going to be some social upheaval as a result of all these major changes that have accelerated and happened so rapidly. So this is a very high likelihood in terms of outcome. So what are we doing about it? The answer should hopefully be something beyond absolutely nothing. All right. So Great segue into the <laughs> practical, what should we do about this uh, part of the discussion here. Um, so I, I know at Sovereign Man that you guys um, actually write a lot about this. Uh, you recommend people have a plan B. Um, what are some of the key tenets based upon the risk factors that we've talked about? And, and if you want to flag some others that we haven't too, feel free to do so. But what do you think are some of the most important you know, action steps that people should be implementing in their lives now based on some of these 
what we consider to be sort of highly predictable future risks. Uh, well, I, I imagine you probably want to talk mostly about financial uh, stuff. I mean, investments and markets, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but I mean, I, yeah. I know that you, you know, have, you well, it's a, all, it's a huge resilient it's a big lifestyle. Part of it. Feel free to talk about that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big part of it, obviously. So if we, if we think about finance, again, it goes back to this idea of uh, investment selection and so forth. We hope you've been enjoying this discussion with investor and entrepreneur, James Hickman, AKA Simon Black. The interview continues over in part two, where James shares the methodology he recommends for investing in today's highly uncertain market environment. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. It only takes a second and it really helps us out, as the more subscribers this channel has, the more great experts we can attract onto this program in the future. Ooh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio with the risks and opportunities that James has highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with James Hickman. Thank you.